Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for Abby's testimony and how you use trials. You use terrible things. You use really deceived uh, Christians that even do uh, bad things to us. You still flip it around and can use it to teach us and grow us and shape and mold. So thank you that she kept her eyes on you and that you used it in her life and that she's here in our church uh, growing and just building relationships. Father, I just pray for this message. I believe it's from you. I believe it's what you want me to say. And so I, I thank you for the power you're going to give um, to deliver it. I pray that it would work in people's hearts today. Um, Lord, this issue of evil suspicion and how the devil just gets us thinking and assuming things against each other. Pray that you'd shine a light on it, that you would uh, root it out of us, that we'd learn how to really hash through relationships with each other and and grow, that we would be unified together in the mission that you've given us as a church and in showing other people your love and what it looks like to walk together in unity. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, Sam, I can't share my screen yet. Might have to change that. Gave away a little bit of my sermon in the prayer. <laughs> uh, it's about evil suspicion. And we're going to go a little bit more into what that means. But I wanted to start off with a story, a story about two dudes there we go. <laughs> Me and Tad. So uh, this is actually, this has nothing to do with the story. It's just a funny picture of us. But um, a couple months ago, maybe actually back in January, uh, several people were, were coming to me and saying, hey, we should do this men's retreat thing. The women are always doing cool stuff, Bible studies, retreats, and the guys never do anything. So we should do this. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So I brought it to Tad. I talked to him and he's like, you, that sounds awesome. Why don't you take it and run with it? So I did. I booked a place. I calculated all the costs and everything, figured it all out. And then I came to Tad and Richard and I was like, here's all the stuff. And Tad was like, what? Like, wow, that's cool and stuff. But why didn't you uh, like ask me about it or like run stuff by me a little bit? And I was like, I, I thought you said, just take it and run with it. So in that moment, evil suspicion came knocking at the door and I really struggle with thinking, man, maybe Tad, maybe just doesn't trust me. He just doesn't trust me. He doesn't think I can plan a men's retreat, right? Doesn't think I'm capable, thinks I'll make some kind of bad decision or something. But I thought through it. And I'm like, that, that just can't be the case. That just can't be true. I know Tad, we have a history together. I know his character. Um, so I just went and talked to him and lo and behold, it was just simple miscommunication he, he said, take it and run. And by that, he meant, hey, just run, bounce some ideas off me. Let's talk about it. But you kind of make sure it happens. I took take it and run as do everything and then tell me when it's done. So just a miscommunication. That's all it was. But the devil was there knocking at the door, trying to use it in our lives to cause this mistrust and bitterness and all this stuff. So that's evil suspicion. And that's what I want to talk about today, because it's a strategy of the devil in your life and in my life. Um, the devil has many strategies and schemes. We talk about a lot of different ones. Bitterness is a big one. I'm so thankful we talk about it in this church. It's a huge, huge issue. Um, and I believe it's the role of teaching and shepherding in the church is to shine a light on some of these things so that you're aware, um, so that we, um, the scripture says we're not unaware of his schemes, of his devices, the devil's schemes, so we can stand up against them and fight them. So, um, Tad has mentioned evil suspicion, but as I was praying about what to teach on, this really came into my mind. And so we're going to go into specifically evil suspicion. And I think I have a, yeah, there we go. Evil suspicion. So why does the devil want to cause evil suspicion? Why does he want that for you? Uh, because it causes you not to trust your brothers and sisters in Christ or other people as well. I'm specifically talking about how this relates to Christians but it happens in other aspects as well. It causes you to isolate, not have good accountability. You just shove people away because you're always suspicious. What are they up to? What are their motives? Um, it causes us not to be unified. Um, I haven't seen this directly, but I know of cases where, man, evil suspicion has just inflamed people in the church, causes like church splits, divisions, etc. And then ultimately, uh, we're not focused on what we're supposed to be focused on. We're not unified. We're not uh, reaching people together and showing them the love of Christ. We're like fighting and, and suspicious of each other all the time. So Jesus wants to free us of this thing. And he tells us, uh, I think Abby said it, or maybe 
Tim, but know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we need to understand what is the truth about how this works and then how does what Jesus brings set me free? How can I, how, how can I walk in freedom from evil suspicion? So now I wanted to talk more specifically about what it is to help define it. I have kind of a simple definition that we're going to blow out a little bit more, but evil suspicion, how I'm defining it is assuming that you know why someone did, and it also could be why they didn't do something. Like somebody, you thought maybe they should have done something if they cared about you and then they didn't do it. And then you're like, well, I know exactly why, because they don't like me or whatever. That's an example. Uh, and usually it's when you assume they do it, they did it or didn't do it to hurt you in some specific way. You're, a, you're assigning them a motive. You're assuming that. And sometimes we're going to talk about this later in the talk. Um, sometimes people actually think it's a feeling they get from God. Um, they call it like they think God's given them discernment and they think God's telling them the motives of other people. And so we're going to talk about why that's not what discernment is. So here's some examples. And you, and I want you to think specifically about yourself. Cause again, Oh, I feel like this, this is easy. And I do this whenever someone's doing a sermon, I'm like, Oh, that person, that person needs to hear this. Right. I wish, but, the, but God wants you to look at yourself. Um, how do you do this? How is this prevalent in your life? Is it, even just as simple as the person that cut you off in traffic, right? You're like, oh, they're just a jerk, <laughs> you know? Well, maybe they had a bad day, you know? Like I've accidentally cut people off in traffic, you know? Complete accident. I had no malicious intent towards them, but I'm sure they were probably thinking like, what's that guy's issue, you know? What a, what a big meanie. Or like if someone's late to a meeting and you just assume, oh, it's because I'm not really that important to them, right? Like, how do you do this in your life? Um, or maybe these people around me or the leaders, they just want to control me because that's why they told me this. That's why they gave me this advice because they just want to control me and they want to they they want to use me, et cetera. Or that maybe these people didn't invite me to something because they don't really love me. They don't like me. They don't like being around me. There's all sorts of ways this can work itself out. Or maybe even like this person looked at me in this way and I know exactly why because they, they hate my guts, right? When they're not even thinking about you right? They're thinking about something else and they happen to glance your way. We, we're just ridiculous how uh, this happens. Or sometimes it can really get blown up and worked in your life to where you really, I, I've met people that think everyone is like in cahoots to get them. Uh, everyone in the church, everyone in the world, etc. It it, the devil can really work this. And Take note, it really is a very self-centered approach to look at things, to really think, hey, everyone's like thinking about me, talking about me, talking about my back. It's the kind of the me, me, me monster, right? Very self-centered approach. Um, but here's the, here's the trick. There, are, there definitely are people out there that are wanting to take advantage of people. They're a leader. They're bad leaders. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. So how do we have a biblically-minded approach? How do we not have evil suspicion how do we assume, how do we not assume people's motives, but yet how do we walk wisely and not just be super gullible all the time, right? And just blindly trust everyone. Well, hopefully this talk will help you find that line where you're not giving into the devil's schemes, but you're also not being gullible, okay? So uh, to do that, I wanted to look at, in, at the life of a biblical figure, King Saul, as an example of what not to do. So... King Saul, there he is. He just looks really suspicious, doesn't he? This is a live photo of actual King Saul. Uh, not to be confused with Saul in the New Testament. This is King Saul in the Old Testament. So I'm going to tell you a few things about him to kind of catch you up in the story. Some of you probably know it, but it's actually pretty important to understand the story flow and what gets us to the part I want to focus on. So King Saul is the first king anointed by Samuel. After seasons of judge, a season of judges, there were judges that God picked to rule over his people. And then Israel whined and whined and whined because they're like, we want a king just like the other nations. Uh, and God's like, that's not the plan I have for you. But they kept whining. And so eventually he gave them a king and he said, you're not going to like it, but I guess I'll give you one. So Saul actually, it seems like he started out decently well. He had a big major victory against the Ammonites, but then pretty quickly his decline begins. It seems like the success gets to his head, perhaps there's a lot of things that go wrong, pride, all sorts of stuff. So one in one example, he's offering a, a sacrifice that only the priest is supposed to make. But he's got good reasons why, you know, he's like, um, needed to happen, I needed to seek the Lord, do the sacrifice, so I just did it, right? So we constantly see Saul, like, using his own reasoning 
as to why um, he should disobey God. And it's okay because it actually is better than God's reasoning, right? Not a recommended approach to take. <laughs> Would not go there if I were you. Um, things start going downhill, but he's still having like some success in battle. The final nail in the coffin is where he pretty much does the same thing. He disobeys God in 1 Samuel 15 in favor, again, of his own reasoning. He's like, this is, this is why I'm disobeying God. We see kind of a theme here. He tries to keep up appearances that everything's okay. He wants everybody to think, hey, everything's good between me and God and Samuel and everything. Um, so another lesson, another sermon that you could go off is like, don't try to use God as a means to your end to get what you want. You have, we have to be on God's agenda, not on, not try to get God on your agenda because it will not work out for you. So after this, God picks David to be the next king, but Saul doesn't know that, right? So here's where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16. If you have a Bible, turn there. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's always really hard for me to tell if the text is going to be readable uh, because we don't get in here till Sunday mornings, but um, hopefully you can see this. Here we go. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. Now this is talking about Saul. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, immediately you're like, what in the world? I'll talk about that a little bit later. So as Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So apparently it was pretty obvious. Let our Lord now command his servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the liar. I get a kick out of that. They got to find a good liar. Now that's a musical instrument. Bad joke. It's like a little harp type thing. Um, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it and you will be well. So notice this is kind of interesting. Instead of like figuring out why all this stuff is happening, they're like, let's just try to fix it with some music, right? We'll put a bandaid on it kind of deal. Um, so Saul said it to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen the song of Jesse, the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Sounds like the guy. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them to David by his sons, uh, to, sent them by David to his son, to Saul. I think I still messed that up. I'm going to keep going. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. Note, take note of that. Saul loved him greatly when he started helping him, and he became his armor bearer. Big time responsibility. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, "Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight.' And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and and." And was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So let me break that down. So the first thing, it's kind of a side conversation, but I think it's important. It's like, what the heck is this thing with this uh, harmful spirit from God, right? What, what is that? Well, I think it's fairly clear the first part that because of Saul's disobedience and rebellion, that the Holy Spirit left. That's pretty clear, right? And I think it's also, um, the other thing to point out is it is because uh, it's Saul's disobedience and rebellion specifically, which is why this is happening. Okay. Um, I think one potential way to look at it is because of all this, God w withdrew his hand and this demonic spirit was allowed to afflict Saul. That's one way to look at it, I believe. And then you have to basically say, well, they didn't really fully understand how the demonic worked in the spiritual realm. So they were just like, well, it kind of looks like God took a good spirit and then put a bad spirit on him. And that's how they explained it and, and wrote it down. That's kind of what I think is going on. Again, it doesn't say that uh, it's a possible explanation. Um, anyway, again, how you look at it is it's always, it's in response to Saul's sin. It's not just like God was like, ah, I'm going to afflict you because I want to. It's because Saul was sinful. He was rebellious. He was trying to like make it look like he still had it all together. I really, a lot, I've wondered what if Saul really would have repented? You know, what if he would have hum really humbled himself? I think things would have looked a lot different. So next in the story, we see clearly what the strategy of these harmful spirits are, because jealousy and evil suspicion in Saul just start 
popping up like crazy and they really make him go insane. He really, it, he, he starts looking like an insane person. So here in the story is next when David kills Goliath and has a big triumph in front of everybody, right? So he has this big triumph. He gets put as commander of the army. And this is where, again, I wanted to pick up this a chunk of the story in 1 Samuel 18. And I think I've got it. Yep, here we go. So as they're coming home from a battle, when David returned from striking down the Philistine Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines. So they're, they're throwing a party, songs of joy with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That's probably how it sounded. Probably, probably better than that. Uh, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Take note of that line. What more can he, David, have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from this day on. And I kind of imagine like this. He's eyed him. I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching. So I'm kind of squinting. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. So you see this, if it is indeed what I'm saying, this demonic activity right back there, right? And he raved in his house. This isn't like a party rave. This is like insane um, raving around. Um, while David was playing the lyre, as he did, so the little harp day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And I've I've also thought, how did this thing go down? Because so he's playing and Saul just is completely losing his mind and throws the spear. But I don't know if David just decided like he didn't get out of there right away. And somehow Saul got it back and was able to try again. Like, or maybe he had two spears. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But uh, apparently also David would be great at dodgeball. Um <laughs> So, quick reflexes. Saul was afraid of David. I think I've got it. Yep. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed Saul um, from Saul. So, Saul removed him from his presence and made him commander of thousands. Now, take note of this. That seems like a good thing, right? But it seems clear he's doing that to try to get him killed, dealt with. He, you see several times he does some things to try to put David in spots where he's going he's gonna to die. He's going to have a target on his back, right? And he went out and came in before the people. David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So a couple of things to note. Saul clearly gives in to comparison, jealousy, the whole, the whole gamut of stuff, bitterness, but a lot of times I didn't, I never thought about quite the evil suspicion of this passage before, but it's there big time, big time evil suspicion. Um, the line and what more can he have but the kingdom and how Saul eyed David uh, from that day on, right? Always watching. So I think this is potentially what was going on in Saul's head. Why, why is this guy coming around playing all this music coming into the palace, right? To try to help me. Um, why is he so buddy buddy with my son John? You know, why is he why is he doing that? Why is he so being so successful in battle? It's like winning the hearts of everybody, right? Why the crowd? He's trying to get the crowds with him and everybody. He's gonna he's gonna try to overthrow me. I know it. He's gonna try to overthrow me. I've got to deal with this guy. So evil suspicion in its natural habitat, right there, right? That's that's what I think what's going on. It's really interesting because you know. We know the story that David actually has been anointed the next king, but he's not planning on taking out Saul in the wrong way. He's just there. He has pure motives. He's trying to help Saul. He's trying to help this guy, and this guy is trying to kill him, right? Um, and again, I really believe if Saul would have really humbled himself instead of trying to fix everything his way, it would be a very, very different story. But Saul allowed this uh, evil suspicion to just grow and consume him until he, he really went insane. He was so obsessed by this stuff that he tried to kill David. He destroyed relationships um, and it just like so focused on his mind that he went on this manhunt um, instead of focusing on actually leading the, 
the country well. So, um, and I believe in the same way, the devil wants to work evil suspicion in your life and in my life uh, so that you destroy relationships and trust. You don't, you don't trust anyone and you even go insane and lose your mind. That's what the devil wants. He wants to destroy you. He wants to use you to destroy other people. That's his strategy. And um, I had an example of this recently. I'd asked Chris if I could share because this is something God really has moved in a big way in Chris's life because this used to really be a huge issue for him. And he said I could share it. So when he, Chris first came into the discipleship house um, several years ago, uh, and then even the second time, evil suspicion was a huge, huge issue for him, um, such that he believed sometimes that everyone in the house, in the discipleship house, like the five or six other guys that were there, were against him, were trying to attack him, were trying to, uh, get I don't know, just destroy him. So naturally, if like if you really believe that, you you lie. You defend yourself, you you fight, right? And he would do that all the time. Um, but what's crazy is um, the guys in the house were doing the exact opposite of that. They were trying to love him. They were trying to give him what he needed and what he wanted. But the evil suspicion was so great in him, he, he read it completely opposite and attacked. So Chris had never lived around guys that were so for him and loved him and willing to bear with him and all the challenges that came with that. But a lot of times he rejected it because of that evil suspicion. But praise the Lord, God has got to set him free. He's learning to trust. He's um, And God, if, if that's something that's really something that you struggle with, God can totally set you free as well. And I hope this teaching is something God uses in your life. So again, I wanted to throw this up because repetition is helpful. What is it? Evil suspicion. It's assuming that you know why someone did or didn't do something. It's basically assigning them motives. And the evil part is like an ill motive. Like they did it to hurt you. They did it because they hate you. They did it because they just want you to suffer, etc. cetera. Uh, and sometimes it's connected to this feeling like God, God showed me this, right? It can lead to significant amount of mistrust and destroyed relationships. Um, so again, think through how, how, is, how, is, how is this being affected in your life? How's the devil working this out towards coworkers, uh, towards friends? I remember struggling with this when I would have a friend go hang out with another friend. I'd be like, well, what about me? You know, I thought you loved me. I thought you were my friend. It's like, no, you don't have to hang out with me all the time, right? There's, there's other ways to look at it. What about this one? This one could be a big one. Evil suspicion towards your spouse. They do something and you just know they did that to get back at you or, um, or whatever, to like put themselves above, above you. But a lot of times your spouse is your biggest cheer partner. They, they love you. They want to encourage you, but you're letting evil suspicion get the best of you. Towards those in authority, that's probably a big one, that you're, the leaders that are above you just want to control you. They don't really care about you. The devil will work that in you. Um, and then, it, again, it can also get to where there's the general sense that everybody, like people are communicating through the radio waves about you and... Um, they're all working to get you. Um, so I want to go through some practical steps. How do you deal with it? Right? So I want to get real down to the nitty gritty here. So number one is the first step is always rec just how to recognize when it's there, when you're assigning motives. So you got to learn how to recognize when something happens that makes you, uh, that initially kind of offends you a little bit, right? You feel off put by it, but then you have to catch when do you go from uh, this is what happened to now you're assigning them the motive like this. I know why they did this. That's when it becomes evil suspicion. Um, it's usually just a feeling that you have. And again, the devil, the, the feelings thing, he will, the, the lie he can get you with. I can't remember who said this. The best lie the devil can get you with is the one that feels the most right. You know, so he, he really uses your feelings. Um, so to learn to recognize it is super key. Um, I, I've also got sprinkled in here some big time things. I didn't know how to fit them in other than to say, hey, this is a huge, huge key. So a big key is you don't know someone else's motives. We've got to humble ourselves and realize this. You don't have the special ability. I don't have the special ability to just read someone's mind. Only God does. I don't even know my own motives half the time, Right. Like, how do we think, why do we think we know we can see clearly and just see someone else's motive? It's, it's God who clearly sees and discerns thoughts and motives. Psalm 139, I didn't put this up there, but 
um, it talks about the Lord, you search me, you know me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. So don't put yourself in the place of God, thinking you know and you can see all this stuff. God does. And then Psalm 44, for he, God, knows the secrets of the heart. So God does clearly see your motivations and your heart. You can't hide that from him. But we need to stop acting like we have that ability as well, because we don't. So uh, number two, So number one is recognize it when you're doing it to someone. Um, also, I think a quick note, I'm not doing this so that you feel like you've got the, uh, the authority to just go around and start pointing out when you think other people are, are assigning motives, right? Uh, if, you know, kind of the, the way to handle that is if you really think it is an issue, you feel like you have the rapport with someone, just go talk to them about it. But this isn't like, hey, you're having evil suspicion. You're having just like, don't take it that way. <laughs> then you're not listening to what I'm saying. Okay. Number two, then, um, is a strategy. Um, it's basically asking yourself a question. Is there another possible reason other than the thing I'm thinking? This is, this is really key. This is really important. Uh, and it's essentially assume the best until you know and until you have evidence, assume the best about that person. Why? Because scripture does clearly teach us you want other, you want to treat others the way you want to be treated. So how often do you do something and somebody maybe has assumed the worst about you? And then you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't think that at all. I wasn't thinking that about you. That wasn't my motivation. And you hope everyone else is giving you the benefit of the doubt, but then you don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Right. So one of the things Jesus is saying is at least until you have evidence, assume the best, because that's what you want people to do for you. Um, because usually if you if you ask the person, there's always another reason, like they're having a bad day, like you don't. Um, there there's tragedy that has happened in their life um, that they simply just forgot. Uh, I know sometimes I forgot about meeting with someone and it's like, I want them to assume I just forgot. I don't want them to think it's because I don't care about them because I care about them. Right. So assume the best about that person. And then the last, and this is probably the, the most important step. You have to get real facts to work with. If it's still like, I am struggling with this. You've got to get real facts to work with. You've got to go seek reconciliation. And this is interesting because this is modeled after Jesus. What did Jesus do when there was an issue? When there was, I mean, we're talking big time sin issue in humanity. He closed the gap. He came to us. He initiated and he reconciled. And that's what you and I, if we're in Christ, we are supposed to do. So if there really is, if you've assumed the best and it, it's really hard for you still just to drop it, you have to get facts. You can't just go and assume their motives. So ask them directly. And this is, I kind of put a, a sample question. It's like, hey, when you did this, it made me feel this way. Did you mean to come across that way? And usually you're going to find like, they're going to say, oh, no, I didn't, not at all. You know, if they did actually mean it and they tell you, then you have facts. <laughs> <laughs> but, but usually they're, you're going to find out, oh, man, I was totally misreading it wrong. They meant t something totally different. Um, and I really respect how Tad does this. And um, he's taught me and my parents, I feel like modeled this really well. Let's like get facts, go talk to the person. And that's in my example with Tad, that's what I did. And it totally just cleared it up, right? It was like not an issue at all. But my in my head, I was like making it at, at this issue that Tad didn't trust me. And that was not at all what's going on. This is, um, I keep probably saying this is the biggest thing. Uh, this is a big key. <laughs> um, in our church, in the body of Christ, we've got to be completely committed to pushing into those tough conversations and working through stuff to be unified, especially with people in our church, but you can also kind of apply it to your families, people you're close to, to really have that deep friendship with them. You've got to be committed to going to them, not just expecting, hey, they'll always come to me. Like if you are aware of something, go talk to the person, deal with it. And this is to ensure that we're unified the way Jesus wants us to be. So like, if, you, if you've got an issue with me and the way I said something or the way I come across, I would love, just come talk to me. Ask me about it after the service or something, right? What did you mean by that? I took it this way and I'll, hopefully I'll be like, oh, I didn't mean that at all. I'm sorry, you took it that way. So we've got to be, we've got to be, I'm, I'm committed in this community specifically to just having those tough conversations, to know that we, we are together um, for this cause for Christ, to be committed to being honest with each other, um, because that's 
that's how real community works. And it's wonderful when you know you can go to someone and be honest with them and they're going to be honest with you. That's like, that's a really wonderful thing. They're not going to beat around the bush, right? So let's be that community together. Um, next, I really want to look at kind of an example in the same story of how someone didn't give in to evil suspicion. And we're going to look at Jonathan, King Saul's son, because he did the complete opposite thing that his dad did. There we go. There's Jonathan. I'm actually not sure which one is Jonathan and which one's David. <laughs> okay. Marlena knows. All right. So again, to kind of give you context, this is right after David killed Goliath. He was victorious. David's explaining to Saul who he is. So 1 Samuel 18, and as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. That's crazy. That's like this deep type of friendship, love, right? Jonathan strips himself of his robe and gave it to David and his armor and his sword. He like gives him all of his stuff to be so David can be the commander that he's appointed to. So I was thinking, man, what a different response to David entirely, right? Than what Saul's response was. Now think about this. Jonathan was King Saul's firstborn son, right? So who was in line to be king after Saul? Jonathan. So if anyone had a reason to think similarly to Saul, it was Jonathan as well, right? Plus, if you, you realize, man, I bet Saul's talking about this. Um, it's a side note is your evil suspicion can really easily pass to other people. Um, so if you start assuming motives and then you talk about it and then other people just become suspicious of that person for no good reason. Um, so that's another strategy of the devil to pass and have that evil suspicion grow and affect other people. But anyway, Jonathan didn't let that happen. He didn't think to himself, hey, this guy's out for my throne. Um, he didn't compare himself. Um, he seemed to just put all that to the side and just believe David for his pure motives, right? He gave David the benefit of the doubt. He didn't assume he knew David's motives. And that's what our response should be de facto, I, I believe, for anybody until we have evidence again. We need evidence, not just assumptions. So like Jonathan, the next time you, if you catch yourself thinking, hey, these people are talking about me or they're out to get me, or I just know everyone here doesn't like me, uh, all the different ways this can look, uh, recognize that's the me monster. And another key is just to realize no, nobody's really thinking about you that much, right? <laughs> nobody's really thinking about you that much. People are always thinking about themselves to give you that much attention. Right. And that's like a freeing thing. You know, it's, it's all, it also applies in like worship when you're raising your hands. You're like, man, what is everyone else thinking of me? Or maybe my hands are high enough. Or maybe it's too low or whatever. <laughs> like people, nobody's thinking that. You're the only one thinking that about yourself. Everyone else is kind of doing the same thing in their head. We're just silly people. Um, um, the, the three steps I wanted to kind of give you the practical things again to hit them again. Realize when, when you start assigning evil motives, evil suspicion to someone. Ask yourself if there's another possible way to look at it. Assume the best until you have evidence and then get the facts. Ask them, deal, deal with uh, the issue, have those awkward, hard conversations. And then you'll usually find out, man, it wasn't anything like I was thinking and you have reconciliation and you have a deeper relationship with the person, right? Now, there's a couple side issues I wanted to deal with in closing. One of them is this issue of discernment. Because lots of people that I've met and talked to, uh, and some, some Christians a lot of times think they get a pass on how to deal with this whole evil suspicion thing because they have the gift of discernment. They've got this special connection to God, and God like shows them the motives of people's hearts. So translation, they think God gives them special senses or feelings about a person. So when someone says, I've got the gift of discernment, that's sometimes what they mean. Now, there is a, we're going to talk about what is the valid gift of discernment. But this is not it. So if someone comes and they says that and, and they say that to you and they're like, and I know, I just know your motives are this. I'm just usually like, that's baloney. <laughs> like, like that's just, that's just ridiculous. That's not what true discernment is in the Bible. 
And if you've been believing that, then the devil, that's what he's been using to work you over, right? So there's two types of discernment in the Bible. One is this general biblical discernment that is available to each and every Christian uh, that God wants for you and me. And the other is there is mentioned one time the spiritual gift of discerning of spirits. And notice it's discerning of spirits. It's not just this vague kind of general discernment. It's discerning of spirits. And we're going to talk about that. It's not the gift to know people's motives. So what then is biblical discernment? General biblical discernment that's available to you and me. Well, I'm so glad you asked. Biblical discernment is the ability to distinguish between different things, bad, good, better, best. Because there's a lot of situations you come up against that the Bible doesn't say much about the specific things of that case, right? So biblical discernment is the ability to distinguish what's what's a good decision or versus a better decision with all the principles of wisdom that God's given me in his word, right? It goes hand in hand with the sermon, but there's not, it's not, it's not um, synonymous. They're not exactly the same. Wisdom is this body of principles about how the world works. This, this discernment seems to be how you actually apply those specific things uh, to create, to come up with hey, what is God's best? What is God's better, et cetera, in a situation. And the Bible clearly tells us how to get that discernment. And Hebrews 5 is a really fantastic passage about discernment. Um, the writer of Hebrews is kind of getting on people for not knowing the word very well. And he says, for this time, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. So you really need to be knowing the word enough that these you Hebrews should be able to teach it. But you, you're not there yet. You need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. So you need someone to keep going over like the basics with you. So you're not very mature. You need milk, not solid food. Think about a baby that's not grown up. They, they're on milk and that's okay. Later they grow up and take solid, solid food. But what he's saying is getting on them because they're still like spiritual babies. They don't know. They're not, um, they don't know the word of God. Well, they're not obeying it. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the work of righteousness since he's a child. But here we go. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So see, it's this distinguishing. How do you tell uh, if something is good, better, best, etc.? And how do you get it? It comes with maturity. It comes with character. It comes with first knowing the word of God really well and then practicing it by obedience. And then you pick up a lot of discernment along the way. It's not something like sometimes people want this magic touch of God and then just whammo, you have the gift of discernment. You know people's motives. You've got all of it right then and there. And that's not, that's not how it works. So if this describes you and, you, and you, you really feel like, man, I have the power to see people's motives, I would strongly recommend humble yourself. You don't. You need to realize how terrible we humans are about reading each other's motives. We don't know. Someone can appear to be the nicest, kindest person in the world and then stab you in the back, right? Or someone can look like they just got out of prison, but they're totally telling you the truth, right? So how do you, how do you know? Learn biblical discernment over time. I read this article and I was just like looking up. It's, it's interesting sometimes to see like what stuff is out there. And this was wild. So there's this article. It's like how to tell if you've got the, the gift of discernment. And I was like, here we go. Uh, notice it didn't say gift of discernment of spirits. It just said gift of discernment. So they were asking questions like, do you, do you read between the lines? Do you, do you love to seek for truth? Do you have an uncanny sense of knowing? And I'm like, everyone feels like they have that. Like, who here is like, nah, I don't really care about truth. You know, I don't really care about, I just want to live in a lie. Nobody does, you know, like <laughs> read between the lines. Uh, it's just, it's silly. Yeah. <sighs> I lost my place. Oh, um, the thing that really sees and discerns the heart again is God and his word. There's a place in, in Hebrews talks about the word of God is sharper than any double-edged uh, sword. And it discerns your motives. The word of God does. Uh, and so that's God being active in your life. So usually if you follow people like that around, I believe you'll see a lot of disunity and they leave destruction in their path. People that think they've got this gift and they're calling out people's motives and stuff like that. So again, discernment in the Bible has to know with knowing God's will in particular situations. 
not just reading people's secret motives. But then you're like, but, 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 but what about the spiritual gift of discernment that's in 1 Corinthians 12, discerning of spirits? And um, again, you could do a whole sermon on all the gifts, but I think specifically, this seems to be a special gift from God that he gives to determine whether a teacher or teaching is teaching, uh, is motivated by the Holy Spirit or by an evil spirit meant to deceive Christians. So Jesus said in Matthew 24, uh, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So it seems to be a supernatural gift to fight and, and defend against that, right? Because sometimes you could have somebody say very similar things, but uh, they're a wolf in sheep's clothing or they're really from the Holy Spirit. So God has given people this ability to see right through them effectively. But again, it's not seeing, for, even for them, it's not seeing, uh, oh, Joe looked at me because he doesn't like me, you know, or whatever. It's not that. It's being able to tell if someone's uh, from the Holy Spirit, a teacher, a teaching from the Holy Spirit or not. That's what I believe the gift of discernment of spirits is. But remember, just the whole, Paul sets up this whole argument about spiritual gifts. And what does he say at the end? He, he talks about uh, how if you're fixated on a gift, essentially, you're missing it. What's the big thing? It's love, right? Love is the big thing. Spiritual gifts are great. But if you've got all this stuff, he basically says, if you've got all this discernment in the world, but don't have love, you're nothing, right? So it's like, uh, if you really just get so fixated on the spiritual gifts like that, you're like a baby with a chainsaw, <laughs> right? You've got this awesome tool, but you're not mature enough to handle it, right? So you're going to do some damage. Uh, I just love that image. Yeah, damage to yourself, damage to other people. So it's a tragedy, I think, when someone thinks spiritual mature, spiritual gift equals maturity. That's not the case at all. The best combination is when someone's mature, has lots of character, and God gives them gifts as well, such as discerning of spirits. So um, what, is, what does this maturity look like? It's character. What is this discernment? It's Christ-like maturity over time. That's what we're after. That's what this biblical discernment is. So the second issue I want to hit on, I want to hit on that discernment piece. The second issue that comes along, well, how do you, how do you learn how to wisely trust? So you're not just being gullible, kind of strung along, right? Because you could be someone who really struggles with evil suspicion and then be like, all right, I'm going to deal with that. And then you swing over to where you just blindly trust everyone and get taken advantage of. So there is this, this middle line that I believe God wants us to walk in. So number one, clearly trust. Um, trust is a big deal in, in the church, in God's kingdom. I think that's why the devil's trying to attack it so much. Um. Because there's lots of commands in order to really be surrendered and follow the Lord, you have to trust people to be able to do these commands. Have you ever thought about this? So like bear one another's burdens. How do you do that if you don't trust anybody? How do you, this one's probably maybe the biggest one. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Like how do you confess your sins to one another if you don't trust anybody? You won't. So there is this inherent trust that needs to be had in, within the body of Christ. How do you share your needs with people? Like, I've got this burden. I've got this need. Pray for me. If you don't trust anybody, you won't do it. So trust this. There's this lie. Some people, I've heard people say, I've only got to trust God. I don't got to trust anybody else. That's the lie. That's not true. But again, how do you balance that with Jesus's command um, to be wise as snakes, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves in Matthew 10. He said, He's, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as snakes and innocent of, as doves. So clearly there is this idea not to just blindly trust everyone or even everyone that calls himself a Christian. So I was thinking a lot about this. I'm like, how do you balance all this stuff? I nerded out and created this graph. Uh, I'm going to show it to you. Now, just realize this is my model. This isn't thus saith the Lord, but I think it's a helpful way to, to, to help us learn how to balance and do this trust thing well, not, not have evil suspicion, but not just blindly trust people. So don't laugh. Okay, let me let me explain. <laughs> so you see on this axis, you have time. And I put years because a lot of times it takes a long time to really build trust with someone. And then on this axis, you've got trust. So as time goes on, things happen and you build trust over people. Now, I think the best starting position is this idea of you trust what somebody says, even if you just met them, but you verify it. If you don't, if they say something wild and crazy, you're not like, okay, yeah, 
that makes a lot of sense, right? You're like, okay, I'm going to check that out. I just had this happen with this guy who sold, I sold the car to, and he told me this wild story. And I'm like, I mean, at this point, I don't have any reason to believe he's lying, but I'm definitely going to check out what he's saying is true. And it had to do with this guy getting arrested. And I looked it up and I was like, sure enough, there was an arrest warrant out for him and everything. So I was like, he was telling the truth, but I didn't feel bad about that. I didn't take him at his word, right? Because I didn't know him very much. I think our problem is when we do this evil suspicion thing, we're, we're having people start down beneath that line, right? And that's a problem. So um, let me just give some examples. Let's, let's say there's somebody you meet and over time. Uh, so let me back up for a minute. You're constantly over time running people through a grid, essentially. And it's not based off your, uh, your suspicion of their motivations. It's based off their words and their deeds. And you're filtering it through and saying, does it line up with biblical character or not? And if it does, you trust them more. And if it doesn't, that trust falls, but you still bear with them in love, I believe. You don't, kick, you don't kick them to the curb. You still have hope that God can turn them around and teach them and they can grow because that's what God's done in your life, right? So um, let's say you meet someone, you're, you're going along and you just see constantly they're, they're ex exhibiting Christ-like character where you trust them. And eventually I just put some random things in there. Like you get to a level where you trust them to drive your car, you know, that they're not going to wreck it. They're going to be responsible, they're not going to do something stupid. And then even building enough trust where, man, if you die, you would trust these people to take care of your kids. That's a lot of trust, right? And I can truly say there are, there are people in this church I trust that much, 100%, that take care of Judah if Danielle and I passed away. Because I've seen them over time. We've gone through stuff together, and I trust them. Now, there's some people you might meet that you start at that level, and then something happens, and, and something doesn't line up, and you get the facts, and then... Um, you're totally allowed to not trust someone, but to still bear with them in love and hope that God can turn them around. And um, it's it's a tricky one, right? To be to learn how to be wise and take into consideration people's past, but yet still have this extraordinary hope that God can turn them around and that they can be a trustworthy person, but they aren't right now, right? Um, so I think you're running people through a grid. Do they do what they say? Do they lie about things? And you're getting these, you're not just having a feeling about them you're getting facts. Do they lie about things? Are they concerned for others? Are they patient? Are they lazy? Do they Are they consistent and faithful in small things? Do they seek reconciliation when there's conflict, et cetera? That builds trust over time. So I think that's a healthy model that's not gullible and it's not full of evil suspicion. It's right down the middle. So the other thing I wanted to touch on to close, some people really have been hurt tremendously. That's why and that's really one of the main reasons why they have a hard time trusting and there's so much evil suspicion. And if that's you, you might be thinking, how could I ever get to that place where I'm just not suspicious of everybody? I mean, a lot of times this happens with church people too, right? Like they're suspicious of pastors and because they've been hurt in the church. And that's really, really sad. But I'm telling you today, the answer is truly found in Jesus Christ. because. That is exactly the type of love Jesus displayed for you and me, that type of love that will change you and help you uh, forgive, let, let go of those things and get to where you have trust in a healthy way. So think about this. Jesus, he was betrayed by his, one of his closest friends. He was rejected by family. He was rejected by those who he came to save. He was rejected by the people who were supposed to be ready for him, the Pharisees, right? They were supposed to know when the Messiah was coming and yet he was rejected by them. He was rejected by many that he created and came to save. Yet, in the most amazing way, he laid down his life on the cross for you and me because of that love. So he comes to, he comes to you and offers reconciliation. He should be the one who's offended by us. He should be, but yet he comes to us and offers, offers reconciliation. And that's the thing that will give you the power uh, and the ability to forgive, to let go of things. Um, only a heart transformed, I believe, only a heart transformed by Jesus can really do that, can really do that well. I think you could fake it, but I think a heart transformed by that love will be the thing that enables you to not have all this evil suspicion and to also trust wisely.
And you might even be possibly let down again. You might be let down again by people who call themselves Christians. But the thing is, the love of Christ enables you to keep on loving, keep on forgiving. It's not a one-time thing, right? Because how many of you, after you gave your life to Christ and surrendered everything, you stumbled, you fell again, right? And Jesus loves you and forgives you again and again and again. You're his child. So if you're here today and you haven't taken that first step of accepting the gospel and surrendering everything to Jesus, I would say today's the day. Why You don't have any good reason not to. Jesus loves you. He sees your sin and shame and your the hurt, everything you've been through, even all the evil suspicion you're wrestling with, and he loves you. He sees that it's destroying you. It's going to destroy you. He doesn't want that for you. So he loved you and made a great sacrifice for you on the cross, and he proved it by coming to life again for you. And he makes you a promise that if you surrender everything to him, you follow him as Lord of your life, you'll be saved. But there's so much more that comes with that as well. And part of it is learning to walk this free, victorious life that he purchased for you on the cross. And I believe that that is being free from all this evil suspicion stuff and learning how to trust. So if you're in Christ already, what's the response? What is he calling you today? What's been the thing that's on your heart? Is it change how you assign motives to people? You recognize, man, I do that all the time. I need to stop that. Lord, help me. Is there evil suspicion you need to repent of? Um, do you need, has God put someone on your heart that you need to go and talk to them about something that's just been on your mind a lot? And you can't, you keep assuming the worst about them and you need to assume the best and go have that conversation and ask them what they really meant by it and preserve unity and have that relationship go deeper. Does God, is God putting someone on your heart like that? And here's another one. Do you need to forgive someone for what they've done to you that, that really has just wounded you? And you need to let God heal you and teach you how to trust again. Because that's huge in the body of Christ to have this unity. So what is it that God is asking you to do? I'm going to close this in prayer. And then I think we'll have a short, uh, doesn't need to be short, but we'll have, we can do that prayer time again. If God's laying something on your heart that you need to get off your chest, that you need prayer for, um, this is this is the time to do it. So Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that we don't have to live um, in evil suspicion, we can. We really are free to trust uh, in a beautiful, pure way, and it's great. But also, Lord, help us to not be gullible and naive. Help us to develop biblical discernment by knowing your word, by obeying, by meditating, by practice, by getting out and obeying, and then letting you build up our discernment in that manner. Um, God, I pray that you'd be speaking to people today. Um, how do you want people to be set free? I pray that people would choose to be bold and take a step of faith. And if they need to get up here and share that they would, um, God, would just, I just ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work here this morning in us. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so we're going to do a few minutes of prayer time, and then we'll do a song after that. And we'll keep doing the, uh, the prayer time after that for people who, who still would like to do it. So I'll just open it up. I don't know where the mic is. Oh, here it is. Is there anyone that feels like God's speaking to me specifically about this? It can be another burden. But is there anyone that's got something they want to come share and ask for prayer about? And we'll pray for you.